welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreyer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today we are proud to have the legendary Professor Yossi Sheffi as a guest on the show. Dr. Yossi Sheffi is Professor of Engineering Systems at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he serves as Director of the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics. He's an expert in systems optimization, risk analysis, and supply chain management, which are the subjects he researches and teaches at MIT, both at the MIT School of Engineering and at the Sloan School of Management. He's also a very prolific author of several books, including The Power of Resilience, How the Best Companies Manage the Unexpected, Balancing Green, When to Embrace Sustainability in Business and When Not to, The New Abnormal, Reshaping Business and Supply Chain Strategy Beyond COVID-19, And his latest book, A Shot in the Arm, How Science, Engineering and Supply Chains Converge to Vaccinate the World, was just published a couple of weeks ago. This episode of the Logistics Tribe is hosted by Marco Prudelmeier and covers a wide range of topics. The semiconductor shortage, supply chain disruptions due to COVID, climate change, globalization and the role technology can play to tackle all of those issues. This episode is brought to you by our partner Grey Orange. Grey Orange sits at the forefront of a trend that Yossi considers absolutely essential. Robotic warehouse automation. Grey Orange's smart robots and AI-enabled warehouse automation platform are already implemented in fulfillment centers and warehouses all around the world. I recently interviewed Akash Gupta, founder and CTO of Grey Orange, for an episode of the podcast of the German Logistics Association BVL. If you're interested, I will leave a link to that episode in the show notes. But now, here comes Professor Yossi Sheffi. Enjoy. Hello, Yossi. Welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Thank you for having me, Marco. Yes, it's an honor to have you on the tribe. We are mostly, our listeners are mostly coming from a logistics background. So it's really an honor to talk to you about supply chains. And I would like to actually start with your last book, not the last one, but the one before, which is called The Power of Resilience. Right now in the times during COVID, I was uh, reading through it again. And you actually mentioned already back then it was i think it was published in 2015 and you already mentioned a lot of the problems that we are seeing right now already back then of course it was mainly basically focused on to the fukushima trouble that we had back then on the supply chain side but you also mentioned for example the risk with semiconductors already back then you called it an innovation risk because some companies or some industries are moving slower than other ones And you also mentioned actually pandemic risk uh, back then in this book. And now we are here in this situation right now in, in these days. So what actually went wrong or what did people not listen to you writing this book? And now we are in this situation these days, Yossi. It's of course, uh, I wish people would listen, of course. <laughs> I wish they would listen more. I actually tried. Even in my previous book, I wrote about the fact the United States doesn't have enough ventilators. So it's in the 2005 book. What you can do, you, you write a book, you give talks, you give presentations, you send it to local politicians. Of course, they do nothing. I mean, <laughs> so it's, so it, look, I understand it in some sense. Nobody wants to think about bad things. It's much nicer to talk to them about the bright future with a lot of innovation and new technology and everybody lives to 150 and all this. 
people don't like to even contemplate such bad news. There's also the question of where would the money come from to do all this preparation. So interestingly, during Bill Clinton's presidency, Bill Clinton started national stockpile of PPEs and ventilators and medical equipment. President Bush grew it even further. Of course, he had a 9-11 and he grew it. From... President Obama let it go to almost nothing. He did not replenish it. There was actually a step into the right direction in building up some inventory of the right goods. But then the time since the last event was so long that people forgot about it. <laughs> Interestingly, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, did not have any event. He read a book on pandemics. He read a book. And of course, he was one of our more intelligent presidents. So it's, a, you know, he actually took actions. And President Bush increased it. But then Obama pff, let it go to nothing, did not replenish it, even though he had H1N1 and he had several small, smaller pandemics, did not, could not imagine what it means, went down to nothing. I should tell you that companies did become a lot better. I, I wrote my first book on resilience in 2005. And since 2005, 2000, many companies have become better. Now, with all the, there is no way that companies by themselves could deal with something like COVID-19. I mean, it's too big, it's global, it involves a lot. What can company do if China closes its border? I mean, it is what it is. A specific company can do very little for it. What can company do if workers don't come to work? If the government gives them a lot of money, if demand goes up, you know, in an unprecedented way, and people don't realize that you have to equilibrate supply and demand. And supply has a lot of physics in it. Factories can do only so much. Trucks can go only so fast. There are only so, so many container ships. There are only so many containers. And the policymakers... Don't think in these terms. They think in terms of economics, in terms of curves. You know, there's a curve of supply, there's a curve of demand. We can, okay, that's not quite works because the timeline is fundamentally different between uh, the ability to pump the market, spend a lot of money into the market, increase demand, supply, building a new fabrication plant may take five years, four years. I mean, billions of dollars. It doesn't happen at the same speed. And so we are now living in this mismatch between supply and demand. And coming back again to the special case of a situation in the semiconductor industry, because sure. this is quite a big issue right now. And, and I'm also coming from the automotive industry. Sure. Is it actually a supply chain problem or is it more a fabrication problem? Or how do you see that? It is a supply chain problem in that sense. But what happened is, There's a, a very specific problem with the chips. The problem is that uh, during the height of the pandemic in mid-2020 and the later part of 2020, people were not buying cars or a lot less than uh, normal. So all these automotive companies reduce their orders for chips. In the meantime, there's another demand for chips because people stay home. So laptops and cameras and games, the demand went through the roof. So the chip maker said, okay, here's a market that's going down and here's a market that's going up. Let's sign long-term contract with a market that's going up. And they did. So now automotive came back. That's it. They are already locked into contract with others and they cannot increase supply very quickly. The most interesting case is what happened with Toyota. 
Toyota, after um, the Japan disaster, realized that fabrication plants take a long time to increase capacity. So they started accumulating inventory. And in fact, when the pandemic came, they had a big inventory of the right chips that they need for their cars, which are different than the chips that goes into, let's say, iPhones. Because the chips that go into phones are the latest chip. The chip that goes into automotive and plant, and they're always two or three generations behind because what's most important is not being the most advanced chip, but safety is important. So you want to make sure there's enough time and the chip has been tested. So automotive is using chips that's usually two or three generations behind, just, just like many others, and didn't have enough of these chips. So we started talking about Toyota. So Toyota had this inventory of chips, and in fact, they did great during the beginning of 2021 when the market started going up. In Q2 and in the second quarter and third quarter of 2021, for the first time ever, Toyota was the number one seller of cars in the United States, more than General Motors, because everybody else did not have the chips, Toyota had them. But guess what? That's why I'm saying that just in time is not the problem, because even somebody who had all the inventory, when you have disruption of this magnitude, it runs out. And sure enough, before the end of Q3, Toyota announced 40% reduction in production. What is the reason behind that, Yossi? Why did they run out? Because they did have not have enough piled up in their warehouses? Or was the reason because other components that also used chips inside ran out and they could not build the car? What do you think was the reason? All of this, in the sense that they kept going from... When the market started going up with the vaccination in, in January, February, March this year, they had the pileup. And they were still getting about 60% of what they needed. But they can, for the other 40%, they used the inventory. And then the inventory ran out. So they were still getting 60%. So they had to take a 40% cut in production. My point is that for disruption of that magnitude, you cannot have enough inventory. You just cannot. It's too much. And unfortunately, what is happening now, there are all kind of secondary effects that are happening with chips, with everything else. We're having, at least in the United States, uh, Germany, Europe is a little different. In the United States, we see we're becoming more and more European. Labor unions are starting to be much stronger. We start having significant inflation because, you know, of course, when there's a shortage, people raise prices. But also, we don't have enough workers. So workers, in fact, are raising prices. They're raising salary demand. We have strikes now throughout the economy. Many companies are getting, getting strikes because workers are negotiating much tougher. Why? Because they can. You know, I went to buy a car, and the dealer wanted $5,000 more than the manufacturer suggested retail price. Mm -hmm. I didn't buy it because I said, this is extortion. I'm not buying. So I bought another brand. But, you know, people are using the opportunity because they can, basically. But also the labor shortage issue, Yossi. This is not really a new thing, right? Because we were also talking about the trucking, especially in the trucking business, about labor shortage. I don't know, two or three years ago, uh, I think it already started. But it seems it's just growing and growing into a problem and nobody knows how to handle it in the supply chain. Okay, we can talk about uh, trucking in particular, but there are the shortage of workers in every industry. 
right now. It's not tracking. Tracking, it's not two, three years problem. It's 30, 40 years problem. Okay, even longer. It's in one section of the tracking is the truckload, the full truckload uh, mm -hmm. section, not in less than truckload, not in groupage, what you call groupage. That's mm -hmm. not the problem. Because the United States in particular, driving a truckload, long haul, it means you are three weeks out of home because you go from place to place. So you go home, you stay for a weekend, and you go in again for three weeks. It's a lousy way to make a living. Yeah. But what happens because of this, people don't realize. So people say, oh, just pay them more. It doesn't work. Why does it work? Because if you pay them more, they stay home more. They're really not rent maximizing. They're what's called rent satisfying. They want to make a certain amount of money. And on the margin, they'll trade off being more time at home than being on the road. There have been experiments about it. And yeah, it helps on the margin, but not nearly as much as people think. So there are many other problems. It's the same people who drive trucks or many of the same people also work in the construction industry. And if you want to see a driver shortage, wait until the United States will institute the infrastructure program. Truck driver shortage will go through the roof. But as I say, it's not only truck driver shortage. A lot of it is because the U.S. has underinvested in infrastructure for decades. You know, if you go to Port of Rotterdam and you go to Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, you get depressed. As an American, you get depressed. Or, or I spend a lot of time in the port of Singapore or you know, in Ningbo in the Shanghai. When you see a more than well-operating port uh, and you compare it to most of U.S. ports, it's just, it's not automated or very lightly automated. It's not working. Right now, they're working 24-7. My God, my real port in the world always work 24-7. It's not something new. Here, it's something new. And the whole system is not ready for it. On top of it, there are environmental regulations that are not helping. Give you one example. If you want to get the dredge truck that go into LA Long Beach in Southern California, have to be less than five years old. So many small operators cannot get into the port. And big companies are not sure they want to invest because the California law that it says in 2030, you must have electric trucks. So they're not going to invest even in you know, diesel trucks that are more efficient to get into the port or new diesel truck. You have all this problem. Everybody solves. What happened is, I don't know, I guess uh, politicians need to understand system thinking mm -hmm. because it's you try to solve one problem. And I understand. I understand try to solve the pollution problem in Southern California. But you have to take into account what it means. What are the other implications of this? If you look at each one, should the United States put $3.5 trillion now on social programs? Yes, it would be nice. But do you realize that the shortage will be unbelievably worse? Why is demand so high? Not, not really, because people over the pandemic got a lot of money. Many of them didn't have to pay rent because you couldn't evict them. There was very generous unemployment. And they couldn't spend on movies, on restaurants. People had money. So come the, the, you know, with the vaccination and everything, people started spending. So they buy. So demand whoop, went to the roof. And it's really amazing for me that politicians didn't, even the central bank, didn't think about it ahead of time that you can, yeah, you can increase demand, but you cannot increase supply at the same rate. It takes a while to increase supply. 
Yeah, and with all those bigger issues that are coming in the supply chain, uh, you really need a good understanding on how the one thing is affecting the other ones, right? Yes. Uh, so even the local California regulations on some trucks or sustainability could actually affect the whole supply chain in this region, right? Uh, not, not in this region, throughout the United States. LA and Long Beach have 40% of the incoming containers to the United States. In your point of view, is this actually something that is somehow not regulated or there is missing actually an overall supply chain manager for countries or something like that? Is that something you could imagine? Or I can imagine this and I argue in several publications and with friends in the White House and in Congress that uh, we should have, and I argue for this long, that we should have a supply chain office in the, in the United States. Just look at the system. It's really interesting that President Biden is now starting to think this way. Mm -hmm. Start to think there are some critical items. I think the thing that changed the thinking was understanding that it's actually a national security issue. So it's not just that people don't have toys for Christmas. It's actually a national security issue. If you cannot get the latest chips, if you cannot get, you know, material, it's a national security problem. So I think that They're now starting to pay more attention to it. But the problem is not even this administration or that administration. It's the fact that democracy in general is run by pressure groups. So if I'm in Germany, I have the Greens. I know what the Greens are thinking. But the Greens don't have too many policies aside from environmental policies. So they're a pressure group. So in the United States, of course, they are environmentalists, but there is no overarching understanding of the economy at large. It's not even just supply chain, it's the economy at large. What will be the impact of this environmental law? What will be the impact, for example, right now? The Biden administration is uh, stop a lot of the fracking in the United States. Guess what? Gas prices are up. So now they're talking to fracking and trying to, <laughs> to, to restart fracking. How can you not realize that this will be the case? Uh, understanding, you know, cause and effect in a complex system is the, the, is the world economy. It's not even the United States. It's the world economy. So, yes, we need more and more people who understand, as I said, system thinking. that Everything is connected to everything else. And you cannot just press on one button and get the result you want. There's always unintended consequences. So let's think ahead of time about the all unintended consequences. Which brings us back again to the semiconductor issue, Yossi, because I think there happened something very good now in the US. I think it's called the CHIP Act, and uh, they want to bring one of the big manufacturers actually to the US. I think they're building now a big fab in Arizona or close to Arizona. Is this actually the first step away from globalization, Yossi? Well, first of all, let's talk specifically about chips before before we talk yeah. uh, in general. So the US, the EU, South Korea, Japan are all putting a lot of money into creating their own chip industry, their own fabrication plan. The United States and Europe are trying to bring Taiwan Semiconductor, one of the leaders in chip fabrication, to Europe, to the United States, to both places. Intel is, is committed to rebuilding and, and, and doing more. So yes, as I said, because government realize it has a lot of implication when you don't have the chips. It's not only automotive. Look, only what eight or nine percent of the world chip supply goes to automotive. So it's not only automotive. It goes to but lately, I don't know if you realize it, but iPhone 
Apple has reduced the launch of uh, iPhone 13. They don't have chips. I just went to buy an iPhone, couldn't find an iPhone in the Apple store. No iPhones. Order it, get in line. So, yeah, they delayed the launch of the new watch. The new watch was supposed to be last month. It will be sometimes in November. I don't know. I don't think there's a date. Maybe there is. I'm not sure. And if I may add something here from your book, you called it a diamond risk in the supply chain in the resilience book. And that's actually what it is right now, right? Because uh, TSMC is actually in some parts of chip production. They are up to 90% of the world's chip market uh, provided by TSMC. And this is actually the real example for a diamond risk or... Let me just explain the diamond risk because we know that there are OEMs, let's say automotive, OEM at the top, and then they have uh, contract manufacturers and don't have like uh, Foxconn and Flex and JBL. And then those guys have suppliers and they have suppliers and they have suppliers. So we all have this image that is just spread out. Suppliers, more suppliers, more suppliers. It's hard to realize that sometimes all these suppliers reply, you know, depend on one. Because they all buy from the same person. This is an example of TSMC. That's a critical supplier that uh, serves many industries and many companies, but not directly. So GM may think, well, I have multiple contract manufacturers and they have, you know, talking to Flex, they have, I think, 14 or 18,000 suppliers and thousands of suppliers. Well, at the end, everybody buys chips, <laughs> very similar chips. And it's so... And that's the, the shape of the supply chain is then going or, or reunion back to a, to a diamond shape. And that's what you call diamond shape. Right? That's why I call it diamond. It goes like this and then at the bottom, it all meets in one supplier. And there have been examples like this before, but this is a critical example now that affects the entire industry, not just the company. Is this the first step to ending globalization? That's a much more complicated question. My answer is, generally, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so, even though there are calls by the media, by the politician to end globalization. And I'm really talking to supply chain, chief supply chain officers, CEOs, I give presentation boards and we have discussions about this. The issue is as follows. Mainly when people are talking about reshoring, they talk about leaving China. Uh, at least in the United States. It's actually the only issue that both Democrats and Republicans agree about. Well, two issues. Both of them hate Facebook and both of them hate China. So it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's the only issue they can agree on. But you can talk to companies. Many of these politician media don't realize that it's not just having a supplier in China. It's having a whole ecosystem of supplier and their supplier and their suppliers. There are thousands of them, tens of thousands. And over time, they became good. I mean, people originally went to China for low labor cost, and uh, people who went to China for low labor cost are already leaving China or left China. If you talk about garment manufacturing, for example, cutting and sewing garment, it's in Sri Lanka, it's Bangladesh. Even Chinese companies are not in China. But textile is in China, even increasing. Uh, avionics is in China. Uh, high tech is in China. Robotics. Uh, all of these more sophisticated industries and suppliers are in China. And companies that invested billions of dollars and years and years and years, decades in developing this whole ecosystem, it's not easy for them to leave China. That's one. Second, let's not forget two things about China. It's a huge and growing market, and it's becoming more and more nationalistic. 
which means that in order to sell in China, you have to build in China. So I don't think we'll have too many companies, maybe over time, sure, if there'll be an, enough incentives. And I think it will focus on critical items, whether it's medical supplies or chips or rare earth minerals. And again, there's trade-off. Do you realize that the United States actually has a lot of rare earth minerals? I mean, some people say more than China. But because of environmental concern, we are not mining them because it's really a dirty industry. <laughs> so, so you don't mine them. And, it's, uh, and if you do, it will be so expensive that it will be hard to make market. Do I want the United States to ruin the United States environment? No, I live in the United States. I'd rather have clean water and clean air and, and all this. But we have to realize there's a you know, trade-off. But the solution can't also be that we just push the environmental not so healthy or not so sustainable procedures or fabrications out of the own country and to some other countries, right? This was the solution for many years. Just push it out. Let me give you one example. We talk about the port of Los Angeles that made trucks have to be less than five years old. You know what happened? All the old trucks were sold to South America when they don't maintain it properly and the pollution mm. is through the roof because it's a global problem. It's not a local problem. You know, Global warming is global. It's, it's, it's a, it doesn't matter what California does. And that's also something that goes through my mind all the time if we are talking about globalization. I don't think that globalization will be ended on a global scale. That's, uh, I don't think that. But on the other hand, I think, what is the reason for globalization? On the one, you got the labor cost issue. You want to produce in a country that is cheaper than your own country. Yeah, That's a reason, but it's getting less and less, right? Because the overall wages are getting more and more into an equal trade-off here, or at least closer, so that the transport costs will, at some point, there will be a tipping point, right? Where you probably don't have the uh, benefits anymore. It's not the transport cost. It's the cost of managing somewhere who are tens of thousands of kilometers away. It's the cost of taking more time which means it takes you more time to respond to market changes. So it's several of these issues. As I said, the people who went, the, the company went to China just for low labor costs or, or already left, really. I mean, China, especially along the coast, prices are, you know, labor costs are high. Right. And the second reason for moving to another country would be maybe the raw material issue, that you have the raw materials there already and you want to bring the finished good. So that could be a reason. But on the other hand, there are two other reasons not to do it. First of all, capabilities. You have expertise and capabilities and know-how that uh, now China is becoming better and better. And second, right. you want to be close to your market too. Yeah. So it's close to the market or close to raw material. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. And on the other hand, on the innovation side, more and more factories are getting smaller and smaller. So manufacturing steps that you couldn't do in a small factory a few years ago, you might be able now through to, I don't know, 3D printing or new technology in fabrication space. And this also leads to maybe to more decentralization. Or is this a wrong impression that I'm getting here? I would not say it's not wrong, it's not right. It's just the truth is much more nuanced. Because if you bottle Coca-Cola and the plant is running at, uh, you know, a million per hour, you cannot do anything better than mass production. 
I mean, there are items that are just, are, mass production is so good, you'll never do it with, 3D printing is still slow. Yeah. It's very, very slow. So yeah, you can do it. Oh, just as an example. Yeah, no, no, I understand what you're saying. In some extent, in some industries, for example, the steel industry went over the last decades, went to smaller factories rather than the huge factories. So there, there are cases when this take, you still have very big automotive plants. So <laughs> I don't see assembly plants becoming very small soon. The economies of scale are too large. So it really depends on which one, which industry you're talking about. I know that Moderna, which is, by the way, Moderna office is behind my building. So it's, <laughs> okay. yeah. So you got the vaccine right across the street. Huh? <laughs> Not quite. It had to go to the government and then come back. But, it, okay. <laughs> uh, but they're building now plants that are all kind of innovative plants. For example, the original plant was both a laboratory and a manufacturing plant. So they are very, very advanced. It's all beyond the fourth generation, really. They are totally digital, totally collecting data everywhere, always data-driven. And the fact that they were able to do the lab, originally they designed the laboratory also as a manufacturing. Now they're doing both. They're still trying new stuff, and they're manufacturing right here. I mean, it's a you know, billionaire right from this small building. You can do things that are quite amazing, but still, I don't see chemical plants or uh, you know automotive plants. You know what's the the BSF, the huge plant next to Mannheim? It's enormous because at there the economies of scale. One process feeds another process feeds another process. So it's basically a campus of chemical plants. I don't see this becoming small. So we probably will have both increasing decentralization in some ways and still globalization in the bigger scale, right? I think so. I think so. It depends on the product, depends on the industry. I would like to talk about one issue with you about sustainability in the supply chain. How do you see that coming or evolving in the future? There's a lot going on with e-trucks, a lot with hydrogen trucks, LNG, liquid natural gas, and so on. What's your opinion on that? And where do you think are the supply chains of the future going in that way? I think the issue is bigger than supply chain in some sense, even though most of the emissions are in supply chain. The issue they wrote about in my book on the, you know, I had, I had a book. The newest book, yes. No, 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 not the newest book. I had a book, Balancing Green, about four or five years ago, four years ago. Ah, the, okay, some, some years before, okay. Mm -hmm. And I wrote then that the main problem is consumer acceptance. The main problem is that people, when you have a poll and some consulting firm asks people, would you pay, you know, 10% more for a sustainable detergent? Of course, 70%, 80% will say yes. So since I don't believe anything that people say in polls, I went to the supermarket. We had students then in supermarket. And there are supermarkets when they have in green awnings sustainable product and right next to them regular product. In Massachusetts, which is one of the most progressive states in the United States, there are about 7% more choosing the sustainable product. About 7%. Seven. 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 As opposed to 70 or 80 who say, who say they're going to do Yeah, it. right. And by the way, when I talk to all my friends in industry, they all have the same experience, that people are not willing to pay for it. Now, the problem is, and my issue then was, and it's, it's a lot more complicated, so I'm trying to simplify and give you a quick response. The problem is that if a large part of the citizenry is not willing to do it, 
Neither companies nor governments can do it. Companies can do it if the customers will not pay for it. Give you an example. You know, McDonald's started to change the straws from plastic straw to disgusting, really disgusting paper straws because they melt in your mouth. Okay, uh, but they change it. It has zero effect. So I, I, I talked to somebody in McDonald's. I said, what are you doing? You're just, you know, it, it, it's greenwashing. You do nothing. And he said, so what do you want us to do? I said, stop selling meat. You know, cows emit a lot of methane, which is 28 times more harmful to the environment than CO2. He said, oh, we cannot do this. And it is a, that goes too far. Goes. <laughs> a German company, a, a German company, what's the, the, the sneaker company? Puma. Puma did the environmental profit and loss statement. Everybody was talking about it. So they did the EPFL to find out every item, what's the environmental impact. You know what they found? That the worst item is leather sneakers. So I asked the head of supply chain, so what are you going to do about it? He said, nothing. Customers still want leather sneakers. So we still make leather sneakers. I said, so why do you do it? Okay, so let's now go. Uh, government also cannot do it. Think uh, the French government tried to put some uh, carbon tax, which, by the way, is the only way, in my view, one of the main ways to do it is put a good carbon tax. Paris was burning. Remember the yellow vests and all this? Yeah, yeah you remember. Mm -hmm. You know, the Australian government fell on the, and the battle cry was X the tax. They didn't want to have it. There are large, I'm not saying everybody, but there are large segment of the population who are not willing to do it. So my solution, and it has to do, by the way, with the pandemic. Let me tie to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Because both the pandemic and global warming are global problems. You cannot solve it locally. If we will vaccinate the entire United States and we don't vaccinate Africa, it means nothing. We have not solved the problem. The same way if Southern California is putting, you know, emission standard, but Chinese is still opening, or India is still opening coal plants, uh, you know, it doesn't work. The world has to operate in concert. Uh, that's one, it's a global problem. Another, to me, another validation of my argument from four years ago, that consumers are not willing to do it. Let me ask you a question. Over 40% of US people are not willing to get vaccinated. Right about that, yeah. Uh, okay. How can you convince people when they have life-threatening disease? People are dying. Colin Powell just died. I mean, Colin Powell just died from COVID. How do you convince these people? There's danger in front of them, but because some idiotic leader that they believe in tell him something, they're not willing to get vaccinated. How do you convince them of a danger like this? They're not willing to get, which doesn't cost money. It's free. It don't, how do you convince them to make lifestyle changes that may reduce the standard of living for a danger that will happen decades from now? My answer is you don't. It's a lost cause. Lost cause. And it doesn't matter if I will stop flying or you will stop flying. It doesn't matter. There are enough people who just are not willing to do it or don't believe in it. I don't care what. So there is a solution for this. The solution for me, which I argued before and now even more convincing, is technology. Look how we solve the pandemic. We solve it with technology. The vaccines are technological marvels. That's my new book. I have a new book that will come out tomorrow, in fact, about the vaccination process and the vaccine itself and the mRNA and the whole process. So the new abnormal or is it a newer one even? Yes, it's, yes. It, it, <laughs> wow. it, it's called a shot, a shot in the arm because the new abnormal came before the vaccine was ready. 
There was no vaccine. Okay. Came out in last October. This October, tomorrow, there's a new book coming called A Shot in the Arm about the science of the mRNA process and the whole process of vaccination mm-hmm. and all. Okay. Mm-hmm. So coming back, so the solution to the pandemic was technology, is technology. We'll have testing, we'll have, you know, uh, uh, vaccination. We now have the Merck pill. So the solution is technology. In the same way, I argue that we had some technology already, all the renewables. I actually a technological solution. When you have wind, when you have sun power, yeah. but they're limited. You can get to 17%, 20%. You cannot get the 100% renewable. So it's just that it doesn't work because the wind doesn't, the sun doesn't come all the time. We will need, there are technologies now in the lab of carbon capture and sequestration of getting carbon out of the air. We will need to do it. When I get optimistic, I said, okay, the government of the world said trillions and trillions of dollars on developing the vaccine and helping the economy. If we spend a fraction of this on developing the technologies to take carbon out of the air, and we must do it because a huge part of the world is still living on less than $5 a day. They want air conditioning. They want automobiles. They want uh, concrete houses. They want to eat meat. So. It's unfair to tell them, look, we in the West, we are fine. You guys should stay, you know, where you are. You mm-hmm. cannot get better standard of living. That's, that's an awful way of saying this. It's just unfair. So I think that the Western world will have to develop, to invest in the technological solutions. So that's my solution uh, for this, because I don't see mm-hmm. decreasing standard of living, which many people associate with all kinds of environmental rules, as the solution. Yes, on, look, on the margin, it will help a lot less than people think. Because if you look at what uh, you get uh, um, electric vehicle, you know and I know that building the batteries is a very, very energy-consuming process. And there's a lot of chemicals, a lot, a lot, mining a lot of chemicals that are not fun. And then the question is, where will all the electricity come from? Mm-hmm. Will the grid be able to do it? to move it? Will we have enough electricity generated? There are many, many questions. But are you thinking when you say dry or technology will be the issue to solve it? In many ways then, I guess, right? Also in the ways of driving forward the renewable energies, driving forward electrified trucks and whatever, or hydrogen trucks and driving forward getting out the carbon out of the atmosphere again and different technologies. But I'll tell you what's the difference between carbon sequestration, carbon capture, and all this technology. All this technology that you are talking about will reduce the rate of emission, hopefully. Not as much as people think, but reduce the rate of emission. Taking carbon out of the atmosphere yeah. will reverse the situation. It has more impact. It, it, it reverses. Mm-hmm. So it, that's the issue. So to me, I hope that the governments, just like they came together to start funding all the vaccines and helping, helping the economy, will come together to fund technologies that will reduce mm-hmm. the carbon in the atmosphere. My hope. Yeah, that's a very good hope. And I think it's a good way to do it. Is this something, Yossi, that you mentioned already in the book, The New Abnormal, or was this just on the COVID situation itself? I mean, at the end of The New Abnormal and even at the end of the new book, mm-hmm. at the end of the new book, I'm saying that one of the lessons that we can take from how we deal with the vaccine is that we had governments, you know, companies, people all come together and solve a problem. 
the subtitle of the, the book is called A Shot in the Arm, and the subtitle is How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converge to Vaccinate the World. And I think that having this model of a lot of cooperation between scientists and engineers and supply chain managers, there was a lot of coordination and a lot of cooperation that uh, enabled to get the vaccine in 10 months. This is unprecedented. So we got it. Uh, so I'm saying that the working together gave us maybe a blueprint for the future. Another, I'm, I'm hopeful by nature. I'm optimist by nature. So I hope that this is the case. And Yossi, last question for the logistics community. What do you see as the biggest new innovations in the logistics or in the supply chain? I can't leave you off the podcast without this question. Well, it's very hard to get one. I would say something that already seeing at, at scale is the introduction of robotics to warehousing. Mm -hmm. uh, this like is AMRs and everything that is connected to that. All the, yeah, all, this is becoming more and more, you know, you see it more and more. I was in a JD.com distribution center in Shanghai that used to have, I think, hundreds or thousands of people. It has four people running it at the same throughput. Mm -hmm. It's all robots. So you, you see, and they're becoming better and better. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the robots. I think this is a big change. I don't see autonomous trucks coming that fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, there'll be maybe on specific highways, specific lanes, but still have problems. Uh, with autonomous truck. General communication is becoming better. Now, you know, it used to be that uh, we send email to each other. Now we just Zoom and talk to each other. By the way, aside from logistics, I should say one of the best things that happened out of the pandemic is uh, telehealth. The idea that anybody in Africa now can see a doctor in Massachusetts General Hospitals and get the, you know, right here in Massachusetts is one of the biggest hospitals, one of the best hospitals in the United States, and get some of the best diagnostics that can happen over the internet. To me, that is something that came out of the pandemic. As I told you, I'm, I'm optimist. I always like to look at, at, at the good side. What, came, what is the good that came out of the pandemic? So this is something good. Okay, very good, uh, Yossi. And I wanted to ask you for a last question. What will be your next book? What you already wrote it, actually. So, but do you have already the next one in mind? Maybe? The next, next one. Okay, that's a. I would have loved to be worked together on the shortages, but this is. I believe that by the time I'll finish, it takes me a year to to write a book. So by the time I'll finish this, maybe the shortages will not be a, will not be an issue. But I am uh, before my previous book, before the last book, the New Abnormal. I was working on a book on innovations in logistics. Exactly uh, your last question. Try to understand what innovations will be fundamental, or what technology will be fundamental, and what will be just a niche product. For example, you remember RFID. People thought, oh, it's going to change everything. Uh, it didn't change everything. Changed some things. There's still people using RFID, but it didn't change the entire all the supply chain processes and all this. So I'm trying to understand which technology will be widely used and which not. So what I'm doing, and I don't know, I have to get back to this. I have two years I haven't worked on it, but I have a, it's a historical book looking at history, the history of of logistics basically, and how what worked. What innovation, what type of innovation work and trying to develop a lens 
or a point of view about the future. I don't know. I never did a book like this, but I, I, I you know, as you saw, I do books on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just having fun. So. And that's great. Yeah. I can recommend you one book. It's called Innovations in Logistics. And actually, I wrote it yes, in the, in the, during the COVID pandemic. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so maybe as a, a starting point for reading. Absolutely. Also. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And I think it was a great talk for all of our logistics community uh, Yossi I thank you very much and I hope that we can talk again uh, when you wrote your next book absolutely okay enjoy bye bye alright that was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Professor Yossi Sheffi I hope you enjoyed today's show if so consider giving us a quick review on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find our podcast more easily and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgendreher. Until next time.